that good away and who shall wear the starry crown good lord show me the way oh sisters let's go down let's go down good afternoon you're tuned into the living writer show on wcbn fm ann arbor my name is ashley david i'd like to thank you for joining us today my guest is keith taylor author of six collections of poetry, one collection of short stories, and translator of What These Ithacas Mean, readings in Kavafi with Artemis Leontis and Lauren Talale, um, co-editor of that book. He's also the co-editor and translator of the forthcoming book of translations, Battered Guitars, Poetry and Prose of Costas Karyotakis, and that's along with... um, William Reader. The, in, uh, I believe it was 2000, along with John Knott, who's here in the English department, uh, Keith Taylor co-edited the anthology The Huron River, Voices from the Watershed, which was the finalist in 2001 for the Great Lakes Book Award for general nonfiction, recipient of NEA Poetry Fellowships, fiction grants from the ArtServe Michigan, the Michigan Council for the Arts and Cultural Affairs, um, for poetry and prose. Um, Taylor is also um, noted for his work in public radio. In 2001, he co-hosted a 13-week radio program, Storylines, America, Midwestern Literature. And that was broadcast by national public radio stations in eight states in the Midwestern region. And it received the Best Best Award in Special Programming for the Michigan Association of Broadcasters. Beloved by his students, Keith Taylor is the writer-in-residence at Green Hills private school and also uh, teaches part-time at the University of Michigan where he coordinates the undergraduate program in creative writing. We'll be talking predominantly today about his newest book out from Hane Loose Press. It's called Guilty at the Rapture. Welcome, Keith. It's great to have you. Thank you, Ashley. So... um, We've got lots to talk about <laughs> today, and we'll get we'll jump right in. Good. But I'd like to start first with a bit of reading from your new book, from Guilty at the Rapture. Would you read a poem for us? Sure, happy to. Which one do you want? How about the one on page sixteen? All right. This is a poem. This is an old poem, actually. The titles changed, and the stanza has been dropped, but uh, I resurrected it for this book. Uh, confusion of wonders. This is actually a poem about a. It ends with a reoccurring dream that I had in my childhood. My my sister and I shared a room, and my bed would lift up at night, dive down toward my sister, and then head out through the window. It's also filled, of course, with my uh, very religious upbringing, which we can talk about more if you care to. So the poem is called "A Confusion of Wonders." After harvest in Alberta, we children of the hard God were never certain of our sins. We found ways to pass, but not forget the endless list of forbidden joys that governed our waking. When the CBC showed westerns, we went next door to watch John Wayne almost win the very land we lived on. But it was hard, I tell you. Our words blurred Calgary, Calvary, Cavalry. And our beds, lifted at moonrise, pushed through the window, took off like magic flying mattresses over cows, over wheat fields, over horses, plunging up a low hill we wanted to name Golgotha. Thank you. 
That's a poem from Keith Taylor's newest book, Guilty at the Rapture, just out, hot off the presses. Hot off the press. <laughs> the ink is still wet. Still drying. Right. And, um, so let's do start with the beginning. You were a child of the Canadian Plains. You grew I up in Alberta? The, I, did, I grew up in Alberta. I am the grandson of pioneers. My All four sets of my grandparents were homesteaders in Alberta around the turn of the uh, last century. And you wrote about them in recently. You co-edited um, the documentary Imagination Special Issue of the Michigan Quarterly Review, and I believe wrote about... I did. I wrote about my great-grandma, my Irish immigrant great-grandmother who committed suicide in Alberta three years after her immigration, but that's another story. Um, and a surprise to you. A surprise to me, yes. Yeah. No, well, we'll tell that story. We'll tell the, that story. the quick version of that story is that, that uh, in 1996, in a very obscure book, the title of which is uh, Pioneer Policing in Southern Alberta, Dean of the Mounties, 1880-1914, to I, which I found on the sale table at Chamber Drum Bookshop on State Street here in Ann Arbor. I found the police report of my great-grandmother's suicide, uh, which was came as a shock to me. They had hidden the story in my grandparents' generation. The police report ended with a transcription of her suicide note, which was addressed to her older children, one of whom was my grandfather. And uh, it starts out... Your father told me to leave the place this morning if I would not sleep with him. I love my children. God knows I love my children. I don't want any more children. So she went out to the outhouse and drank a jar of acid. Oh, heavens. So I found that, which made me just about faint. I don't usually faint. I'm, I'm good around blood and, and life-threatening situations, but I just about fainted when I found that. And I've been working ever since then on trying to find the details of her life, which is difficult, which are difficult to find. We all know that the, the history of poor women is the history that is usually lost. And I have this little window into this, the life of this particular poor woman um, because of that discovery and because of the, the family documents and everything else. So I've been working on that, and that's a lot of fun. One of the reasons I recognize it is that I had written poems about those people, um, and I dug up some things so I knew those names and knew a little bit about the, the life. So i probably the only one of my second cousins who would have recognized that as our people. Because the, spe- the, name the was spelling spelled. was spelled, the name was spelled wrong, wrong yeah. and and the place name had changed. The place name had changed in 1909, so none of us knew that 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 little rural area was called Kansas. We always we always knew it as Westcott. So um, I recognized the incidents of the story, which was a wonderful discovery. Happened because uh, because I write poems. Well, you write poems now in more recent history, so you grew up mm-hmm. there in the Plains, and your dad, um, you're the son of a preacher. I am the son of a preacher man, yep, uh, the only boy who could ever teach me. Um, the uh, Those people converted, some of them converted to a, a, a particular sect of Mennonism, which is uh, the way I describe Mennonites to people who don't, who aren't up on those things, are, and Mennonites are Amish with cars. <laughs> so we were, we were... From a world-denying sect, I didn't have TV when I grew up. It was a sin to go to the movies. It was a sin to dance. It was a sin to play cards. Smoking and drinking, of course, were were several steps down the the, the stairway to hell. Um, so that poem, the the endless list of, con, of forbidden joys that governed our waking, that was it. Basically, anything that was any fun was a sin. It's not quite true, of course, but uh, there were we could we still could laugh occasionally about cattle and farming. Austerity and work. Yes, austerity and work, particularly agricultural work. Yes, if you were a farmer, your your chances of going to heaven were considerably better. Than well, now growing up in that um, environment, then uh, being a farmer seems to have direct up usefulness. Um, how did you become a poet? Because I was a, because I rebelled against that background. Um, my family, I mean that that 
religious group has changed a lot over the years. And if you were to look at them now, they just basically look like Republican evangelicals, um, even though they're not, even though some of them don't even know that they're not, but, but they're not. Um, so we had, we had changed, and I had to rebel against that, and I did. I mean, that was, I mean, I defined myself. Once I was bitten by the book bug and the poetry bug, which happened in adolescence, um, we also moved from Western Canada in adolescence. We moved from Western Canada. My family moved temporarily to South Bend, Indiana. I didn't fit in. It was the late 60s. It was a time not to fit in when not fitting in had a certain cultural cachet, which, of course, played to all my worst instincts. Um, so I, I ended up defining myself against that, and I've slowly, over the 35 years since then, been growing back into it. And you've told me a story now about um, there was one thing that your father heard or read that he was very proud of. Um. Well, it was interesting. Yeah, my dad, my, my dad and I get along pretty well. We've just we've made a decision over the years that we don't talk about certain things. We don't talk about abortion. We don't talk about evolution. We don't talk about gay people. Um, you know, we just are not going to have those discussions because we know we're not going to de- agree and we're going to yell at each other. Uh, but he's, you know, he, he he's kept up with what I, I write and when I've had work, you know, like book reviews in the Los Angeles Times or something that he sees out in the West Coast, he's pleased to see that and he lets me know that he's pleased. But when I did radio, in, interestingly, in 2001, I did radio and it was, this was decidedly Midwestern stuff and they, they live in, in just outside Portland, Oregon. And he, he tuned in online. Um, I was 49 years old. He tuned, he tuned, and he called me up. And he said, for the first time in my life, I don't think he realizes this was the first time in my life, but he said, I'm proud of you. And, and you know, I got all teary, got all choked up, and I was going to, you know, but I didn't, I didn't want to make a point like say, I have to get to be 49 years old before you tell me you're proud of me. Um, I knew that he was proud of me before that, but that was the first time I believe in my life he ever said it. Wow, what Which a nice was, treat. It was a treat, yeah. You know, uh, I'm glad we both survived long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Uh, well, you were bitten by the poetry bug then uh, as a sort of coming-of-age person in South Bend, Indiana in the 60s. I was, yeah. No. Were, were there, was there a particular um, body of work or person or book that did it for you? Early in those years, no. I mean, I had... I had even before that, I'd, I'd, I'd memorized poetry. We always had to memorize the Bible, King James Version. I did a lot of that. Um, and that started early, even before I could read. I was memorizing the Bible. And that translated very early on in my life. I mean, seven, eight years old, I was memorizing poetry. I mean, at one point in my life, very like seven years old, I could do all of Robert's services, The Cremation of Sam McGee. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, there's strange things done by the midnight sun, by the men who moil for gold. The Arctic tales have their trails, have their secret tales that would make your blood run cold. And, and it, the first and time I've been warm, that's the one. And, and yes, it's, it's since I left Plum Tree down in Tennessee, it's the first time I've been warm. That's the one. That's the one. Um, so, you know, some of that was the, whatever those rhythms were and whatever that, that joy and that kind of, that kind of narration, that had, that had hit me early on. In South Bend, it was the first winter I was there, was seventh grade, I believe, um, I, sometimes I say this is the only thing I will ever write in my life without ulterior motives, without sort of saying, I'm writing a poem now, or I'm writing a story, or I'm writing something. I looked out my window at snow and wrote something about the snow. And I took it to school and showed it to a guy um, who later became a drug dealer. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Your first editor. <laughs> that's right. And he said, make it a poem. And I said, well, what do I do then? He said, well, just make it, you know, break up the lines, make it look funny. No, he didn't say lines even. He just said, break it up, make it look funny. So I did. My English teacher went nuts. And uh, ever since then, I was a uh, I was a poet. The English teacher even gave it its title, a lousy title, called The Passion of Winter. 
I still I found a copy. I still have a copy. You, oh, I wish I'd known that. I would have asked you to bring it. <laughs> it's pretty awful. Can you recite it? <laughs> no, I can't recite it. I can't recite it. But it was decidedly just looking out my window describing a snowstorm. Now, was this was not the first time you'd seen snow. You came from the plains of Alberta. Yeah. What was it about the snow in South Bend that well, struck I mean, you? Well, you know, because I came from the plains of Alberta, I think, you know, winter is our season. Margaret Atwood writes about that a lot, actually. Um, for Canadians, winter is our season. And... Uh, we we imagine things when they're cold, when there is no bird song, um, and uh, when people will die if they go out without protection. So um, I was all I, I was I still am. I mean, winter is my season. Um, I love it. Great. Well, I want to ask you a little bit about this newest book, Guilty at the Rapture. Sure. Um, in it, there's both pro, there are both prose and poetry pieces. Um, and your collection of stories, Life Science and Other Stories, um, I'm told at one point was um, Life Science and Other Poems. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about genre. How do you, I mean, some things you can look at the page and we can say, okay, this is, we've right. broken it up. Those right. lines look funny. This right. is definitely a poem. Right. But how do you think about your work in terms of genre? And when is it, your, your criticism is clearly prose, but <laughs> then there's this whole other spectrum. Right. Um, I mean, first of all, I think that that's an important question. I know that that question has helped me as a writer. There are other writers who do things, you know, sometimes in line and sometimes in paragraph, and they say, well, it's just it's what I call it. That's all that matters. But no, I mean, thinking about that question has been good for me. It has helped me write. Um, certainly, there are things that come out rhythmically uh, that that seem to have patterns of repetition, of of sound or of emphasis, and those I will often try to accent by line. Um, sometimes quite artificially. Uh, now I, I will tell you this. You can't tell anybody though. That I, I often. <laughs> Mum's the word. <laughs> I often count syllables. There, are, if you look through, there's there's a lot of poems in this book that that you will find. Every line of that poem has seven syllables. How did that happen? Um, not a coincidence. Uh, not a coincidence. So you know, I mean, I, I, that kind of order that will come with that. Um, when I do, a lot of my poems tell stories anyway which is another unfashionable thing about my poems, which we could talk about, too, if you wanted to. But there's a narrative element in a lot of things that I write. Sometimes when I'm doing that, the narrative seems very clear that it's going to move from paragraph to paragraph to paragraph, and it does seem more like a story. Uh, it has a beginning. It has uh, the famous arc, um, the, the, the narrative arc, although it's not a word I particularly like. But uh, but So those things will end up being stories. And also there are things in this book... Um, that I consider tiny little essays. I mean, there's no fiction in them. There is in the other book, too, Life Science and Other Stories. Well, and none of these books are labeled as anything in particular. No, they, I know. They're titled, but <laughs> they're they are not titled. labeled as fiction. So it's all, I mean, yeah. I have one of the stories um, in the book, which is fiction, is about being in, in Paris and uh, is, stealing yes. this man's money. Uh, and I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, my goodness, Keith, <laughs> you know. thief. What kind of Mennonite are you? It looks like <laughs> such a nice boy. Yeah, yeah. and, and, and uh, people have asked me about that a lot. It's interesting about doing that, about putting these things together, because you have that lyric voice, that that I, in the first person in a poem, which we all assume, uh, because of the Romantics and because of the last 200 years, that that is indeed the poet. And that's fun to play against. And so I put these things where the I is very obviously me, and in my own mind it's me, and I put that next to something where the I is very obviously not me. And, you know, it's fun to see what happens, because suddenly it's it's like the the... What it, what's the guy who wrote the James Fry who had the, the big scandal in Oprah? Right, I, I suddenly look uh, much worse than I am, except, of course, when anybody ever asks me. I don't claim that it's true. But uh, in the life science book, for instance, there's a story called The Customer, uh, which is about – the guy doesn't do anything, but he follows a woman through a town, very much like Ann Arbor. 
And it's fiction. Well, I never did that, even though it's in the first person. Believe me, actually, I never did that. I believe you. Okay, thank you. Well, that story was read on um, NPR's Selected Shorts. It was read by the actor Jeffrey Wright, who's just got this incredible voice, and he did such a wonderful job. And I was so proud of that, as I still am. And I had my sister, who's a nurse in Portland, Oregon, listen to it while she was working, and she brought all her nurse friends over and said, my brother's story is going to be on NPR, and so the little sick babies were all asleep, and so these nurses in Oregon gathered around to listen to that story, and it's about this rather creepy guy following women through a town, so they uh, they all sort of looked, and she called me up that night, she says, why did you tell me that story it was so creepy? I'm like, well, story, it's fiction, it's not me, but, so the blur, even even my own sister... My Even your own sibling. sister falls for it. Yeah. That's the convincing heart to right. these stories. And but times. it's fun. It's fun to do, and it's it's a, it's a good thing to do. I, I think as a reader, I enjoy that kind of thing, um, because I don't know how to label point of view, and that's kind of fun. Wonderful. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be okay. right back. Uh, you're listening to the Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor, eighty-eight point three. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Keith Taylor. We'll be right back. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My guest today is Keith Taylor. I'm Ashley David. Thanks for joining us. We are talking about lots of things, um, and we're sort of focusing on his newest book, Guilty at the Rapture, just out from Hanging Loose Press. And Keith, I wonder if you'd read another little bit for us I'd be happy from to. that. How about um, Cracks of Dawn? Okay, that's later, isn't it? Yes. Page 64. There we go. Thank you. Or Sorry, Crack of Dawn. Crack of Dawn, yeah. Um, Another little older poem that I resurrected for this book, um, it seemed to fit because it was about that looking out in my wonderful backyard saying this is when people were killed. Uh, and this was execution time, which is how the poem begins. So, Crack of Dawn. Execution time. The red slash cut between oaks. The line across snow. One cigarette, a final cup of coffee. It will end in rapture or holocaust at this hour when the world shrinks beneath the day's weight under the lies about light behind an opening door, about beginning, about birdsong. Thank you very much. Now, it was a little slip for me to call that Cracks of Dawn, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, I'm going to make it work. Yeah. Um, you have been described, uh, this book has been described, rather, as um, sort of going toward the apocalypse, no matter what. Right. And uh, so I'm, I'm going to crack, you know, dawn open and all kinds <laughs> of things. And, and let's talk about um, falling off the face of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, this book, as it, as it took shape, which it took this shape with significant help from my editors out in Brooklyn, um, and as, as as I was as I started was seeing this stuff, the shape of these things, all these different kinds of end of the world scenarios were coming into play. Or sometimes they were just end of ends of small worlds. Um, and that, that subjective eye, who yes, the eye exactly. is, it's like the end of my world. Right. Um, and so I and and so then this poem seemed to fit suddenly. Um, it had been in a chapbook years ago, but. Uh, 
you know what that was. I mean, it was that was very self-revelatory because I, you know, I mean, I look like Santa Claus, and uh, sometimes I kind of imagine. It's true, my, listeners. He does have a little resemblance <laughs> to Santa Claus. Uh, sometimes you imagine yourself as Santa Claus. Well, you know, I'm a pretty jovial kind of guy, um, and uh, you know that I'm fairly hopeful, even though I m- have trouble with the religious hope I grew up with. I have, uh, I have certain amounts of hope about our possibilities, uh, and the, and this book because of this theme that was there that I hadn't even quite realized ends up being at least a tad darker than um, my self-image. And, uh, but that's a fair amount of work. That, you know, I mean, that's, you know, 80 pages of stuff. 80 pages um, of apocalypse. Exactly. And it's not really. I don't want to overdraw <laughs> the... Hopefully there's still <laughs> yeah. a couple laughs in there. Um, and that, was, uh, that became pretty interesting to me, just as much as for what I could find out about myself. Um, and, and what I'd done, I mean, this work... Uh, covers, I mean, it's really 20, 20 years of work in this book, and, uh, uh, you know, that this theme has been there from 1985 to 2005. It's interesting. Now, as you are reworking this book, I've heard you say that some of the poems that are not included and in some of the writing that has dropped out of this collection has been your work that has to do with birds and nature and, and some of the yeah. more, which, you're an avid birder. The, hope, the hopeful stuff, yeah. Hope, yeah. Now, is that uh, stuff hopeful? or? By, by, and large, by and large, it is. Um, you know, I mean, d- despite the fragility of uh, birds and, and, and despite the fragility of the natural world, uh, I still have great hope in its resiliency that we can find ways not to screw it up or find ways to restore it um, you know, in, the, in the pattern of Aldo Leopold or somebody. Um, but uh, a lot of that does tend to be, tend to appear to be more purely observation, um, that we look at the world and the act of looking is in and of itself enough. And I, actually, I do agree with that. I do think that's a that's a philosophical position that I subscribe to. Um, Is it one that you sort of wove into your editorial decisions for the documentary imagination yeah, issue of the Michigan Quarterly? Certainly, certainly. I mean, my interest in documentary. Um, in, in the broadest definition of it, is certainly that that we can find these things in the world, um, and the, and they can assume their own meaning, uh, and that can be interesting. Um, so. Uh, yeah, that's a, but I have another whole other book now, a whole other book. I mean, I don't think my friends in, at Hanging Loose will publish this book. My Midwestern bird poems don't appeal to their big city uh, sensibilities. In Brooklyn. Uh, in Brooklyn. But, uh, but um, you know, there'll be another book that will come from somebody, uh, probably somebody regional, that will, that will be much more focused on environmental things um, and looking at those birds. But it's an important thing to me. It gets me off. Uh, I'm a sedentary guy. You know, I read and I write, and, and I need to get outdoors. And well, you I, recently told me a story about trekking all the way down to the south of Texas to see I whooping d- cranes. I did. I did. I was actually. I was actually. I got a little bit of money from the university to pay some of my expenses to to a writers' conference in Austin. And I don't go, even though I'm a director of one writers' conference, but I don't go to many of them because I feel kind of uncomfortable in many of them. So I went down to this big AWP conference, which, for those people who don't know, is the sort of big national conference for writers who have jobs in universities. And I, I did. I, I felt I had to, to do what I had to do to earn my money. I, I, I gave myself. If I talk to twenty five people, I can leave. And I checked them all off. Did and you I count? To, uh, you did. I did. I did you count list. me twice? <laughs> uh, no, because I, I didn't talk to you. That's I true. just. We didn't just, run into you know, each other. No, I didn't yeah. run into you. Uh, but I got to my twenty five, and then I went down to Aransas National Wildlife Refuge, and which is where whooping cranes, which nest in my home province, which nest in northern Alberta, but that wild flock that, that has survived. Uh, all winters in Aransas on the Texas coast, and I'd never seen a whooping crane, and I wanted to see one. And there are 400 on Earth, and I saw 25 of them on the Monday after the AWP conference. 
at one point on the Monday afternoon, I was in there. I was in this little boat with a dozen people, and we were in the middle of a 50-square-mile saltwater swamp. And we were about 50 yards from a family of three whooping cranes, had a spotting scope on it, our largest North American bird, one of the rarest birds on Earth. And I actually saw a drop of water form and then glisten and fall off the beak of this incredibly beautiful rare bird. And to me, that's just wonderfully, that's just a, that's a, a moving moment. Um, and I've even tried to write a poem about that drop of water, but it hasn't succeeded yet. Cause <laughs> as you can tell. It You're could, still in the moment. Yeah, well, I'm still in the moment, and, and it would be real easy to make that pretty hokey. So you I could write a little jingle. <laughs> I could. I could. No, we won't try to do that. No, let's not do that now. <laughs> um, well, I want to talk a little bit about fashion, but um, before we lose it, I want to mention, I did not mention in the introduction about Bear River. You're the director of the Bear River Writers' I have Conference. taken over. Our friend Richard Tillinghast retired, and I have taken over as the director of the Bear River Writers' Conference, which uh, is associated with the English Department at the university. It meets up at uh, Camp Michigania on Walloon Lake the first week in June every year. Um, we do workshops with about nine writers and then have a guest writer, guest artist who... Uh, Talks about things the guest artist this year is the novelist Brett Lott, also the editor of the Southern Review, a place many writers want to publish. Yeah. So uh, they can Google us on, on, the, on the University of Michigan site. Just Google Bear River and you'll find us. Find you. Well, let's talk about fashion. 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 Literary fashion. Literary fashion. Okay. I mean, we can talk about clothes. I've been shopping lately. <laughs> I know that's your favorite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Um, you said that this book, your editors wanted um, the sort of... Uh, Nature poems or the more observatory poems out of this collection. There's still some nature there's poems in there, but but yeah, they wanted that out. There's, so there's so there's that. So um, that. But that's an editorial decision. And mm-hmm. earlier in the interview, you mentioned that a lot of your poems tell stories when we were talking about um, genre bending, and um, that that's not terribly fashionable right now. And I wonder if you would talk. We're going to talk sort of more at length in the in the final segment of the show about poetry worlds. Mm-hmm. But if you could sort of mention what or ex- sort of expand upon what you meant by fashion and fashionable and poetry, which it seems like an oxymoron anyway to talk about poetry. Yeah, and well, I mean it's, it's 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 the tempests in our particular teapot, um, which can be you know strange and bitter and and sometimes even more bitter than more important tempests in more important in larger teapots. But uh, there was a reaction in the, in the 1990s and continues with people who are doing MFAs now against um, what had been a kind of plain-spoken direct poetry that grew out of the poetry that was all done around the Vietnam War. Uh, and a lot of that poetry told stories, and a lot of that poetry told stories about the lives of the poet who would write the poem. So there was an understandable reaction against that that complicated the surface of the poems, that that, that had a lot more wordplay, um, that played a lot with diction and syntax, and made the surface of the poems much more complex. And the poems themselves became much more focused on the language of their composition. Um, and there was a group that even called themselves the language poets, but not just them. I mean, other other poets associated with different groups had that same kind of thing. This is all pretty understandable. Um, I think in some ways it's gone a little overboard. Mark Doty wrote, had a wonderful line that I use in this discussion in a book of his prose, and he said what he and his friend Linda Hull, who died tragically young, he said what they were interested in most in poetry was ornate surfaces over edgy material. And I think that that summed up much of what was going on in the 90s. Um, I, th- I think much of what has been lost is the second part of that statement, though, ornate surfaces, and we've lost the edgy material. Um, so we have a, a poetry right now uh, in the ascendancy that has very 
interesting, complex surfaces, and sometimes I feel it's not over a lot of substance. That's the generous side of it. The un- my ungenerous take, which does come out from time to time, is that these are just a bunch of poets who all they've done, all they've ever done, is go to school. And they, that's what they're going to write. And about. That, so they're so they can't. They, they have nothing. nothing. To, they have no personal <laughs> narratives to tell. So um, when they don't, well, let's foreground something else then. That's the ungenerous side, um, which I feel less than half the time. But I do feel it from yeah. time to time. Yeah. Yeah. That the old macho thing that you used to see in books all the time, where where you know writers, all writers, had to go out and do all these macho things, was silly, of course, and it was posturing, but. The fact that now that, you know, even my own blurb, you know, it just sort of says where you teach and what awards you've won and where you went to school. And my introduction was yeah, all of that, exactly. too. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's a, I mean, in some ways, that is a diminishment. Um, it's like, oh, writers don't have to be interesting anymore because they're writers, after all. They make it all up. They don't have to live it. So, you know, some of this is worth reacting against, even though, you know, it has to be somebody who's 25, not somebody who's 53, who makes those reactions, I think. It'll happen. It'll happen. Well, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to return and talk about um, being interesting and um, yeah. having a life and, and those po- the different poetry worlds. You are tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Keith Taylor. We'll be right back after our break. Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Keith Taylor. We're talking about many things, um, the centerpiece of which is his newest book out from Hanging Loose Press. It's called Guilty at the Rapture. And uh, the music we've been listening to today are all um, picks from Mr. Taylor. We started out today with some Alison Krauss, a little gospel from Alison Krauss, and um, then some of Neil Young's new album, yep. All the Theme is a, the Prairie. It is indeed. And uh, then that was Katie Lang singing a Crosby, Stills, and Nash song written by Neil Young. Yeah, yeah. Paul yep, help, us. So help us. Gorgeous song. Yeah, it takes us back and to the Canada she, Plains. <laughs> right, and she is from, she's from a tiny little town called Consort, Alberta, which is just down the road from where my dad grew up. I mean, it is the middle of nowhere. I heard, maybe this is a bit of sort of urban myth or music myth or whatever, but I heard I heard tell that she believes that she's the reincarnation of, of uh, Patsy Cline. Um, they both have this amazing four-octave range. It, it is true. She used to have it. I think she's been smoking too many cigarettes. Have you noticed that? that, that, that it's range getting, seems it's to getting, be getting yeah, narrower. Narrowing yeah. down. Yes, yeah. it happens. So if you'll start us out um, this sec- segment by reading a bit of prose from the sure. new book. Sure, happy to. This is, this is a piece... Um, about the first poetry reading I ever went to, which happened when, when I was in high school at the University of Notre Dame. And it was James Dickey, James Dickey, who's probably best known now for writing Deliverance, but this was all before then, uh, when he was considered 
one of the major poets of the time. The essays were written about James Dickey and Robert Lowell as being the major poets of that time. And it was the first poetry reading I'd ever been to. And uh, it moved me profoundly. So this is part of first reading. I must have already been bitten by the poetry bug, or otherwise I wouldn't have walked the several miles through snow to the auditorium in the library at Notre Dame. I didn't know anyone. I was too young. I wasn't Catholic. I knew nothing yet about the ethics or expectations of poetry readings. I must have already been paying enough attention to the magazines, at least to Time, The Atlantic, and Poetry, to know he was something special, James Dickey. I had already shoplifted his poems 1957 to 1967 and had memorized The Heaven of Animals. Notre Dame was still all male then, but the intense young men were growing their beards, dressing in jeans and ripped shirts, wearing beads and peace signs. Still, I hunkered down in a corner against a wall, hoping not to be noticed, waiting for someone to call me out as a fraud. He's a kid. He's not smart enough. He's too poor. He lives in River Park, for Christ's sake. He's a Protestant. But none of the smart young men, or the professorial types in corduroy sports jackets, or the priests, or even the nuns in the first row seemed to notice. The lights went down, and James Dickey was on stage. He was still blonde in those days, but balding, ruddy, and round-faced, but not puffy like he would look later in the photos taken after his outrageous success with Deliverance. Although no one else did, Dickie laughed often during the introduction, as if he couldn't believe some university type took him so seriously. And it goes on. Really what it was is that James Dickey was drunk. <laughs> but I, you know, I had so little experience with drunks that I didn't recognize You didn't know that's what it was? No, I so, thought it was weird. And you say in the piece that you had so little experience with not only drunks, but with poets. poets so right. you thought that's what, what being what, a poet I was. I thought he was wonderful. I thought he was wonderful. He read his poem called The Sheep Child. And uh, I mm-hmm. thought he should be arrested. I didn't think people could, could read things like that in front of other people. So. In front of the nuns in particular. Yeah, in front of the nuns in particular. Yeah, well, they didn't like it, but... <laughs> Well, you go on to say in the piece that you had a conversation with someone at Notre Dame who had been the sponsoring advisor, faculty advisor for that reading, who then published one of your poems. And uh, and you talked about the reading and um, discovered that you had very different reactions. Completely. Um, He was was in charge. I mean, this is the poet John Matthias, wonderful poet. Um, Still teaches at Notre Dame, although I think he's close to retirement now. And uh, he, he was in charge. He didn't particularly like James Dickey or, or James Dickey's poetry. I shouldn't put words in his mouth if that, that I'm not sh- completely sure that's true. But uh, it was the student's choice to have Dickey there, and it would not have been his choice. And Dickey was drunk, and you know who knows what he was going to do. And he was offending the nuns, and he was being a boor. Um, and that was what John had to deal with. And I'm at my first poetry reading, and I'm just blown away by it. Here's this guy being wacky on stage for you know what reason I didn't know. And uh, reading these poems, which I still, um, even even though I see their faults, I still am, am very moved by James Dick Dick Dickey's poems. So, um, yeah, it was a completely different one of those one of those moments where the where the uh, the subjective changes the objective entirely. Well, you said in the last segment that um, it you think that that perhaps some of what's going on con- in contemporary poetry is that people have. Um, not lived enough of a life in order to bring that to... Only in my own generous moments. Only in your own ungenerous <laughs> moments, yes. I don't mean to, to sort of put yep. you in that box. But um, one of the things about Dickey was that he really lived quite oh, yeah, extravagantly. He, yeah, yeah. Um, he, was, he was, I mean, he was a soldier. He fought through World War II. He was an uh, um, outrageously successful advertising executive in Atlanta. Um, was part of the whole growth of Atlanta as a, as a city of business. 
and uh, then left all that because he was bitten by the poetry bug. And then, of course, left poetry when he essentially got bitten by being a movie star, uh, by associating with the with everything that came from Deliverance and, and the poems he wrote after that. Uh, there's a couple that are kind of, that are still pretty interesting, but mostly his his life as a poet was over after that enormous success with with that movie. Well, let's talk a little bit about the construction of the poet. We've I've heard you tell me about um, sort of you can draw three worlds. There's the academic poetry world. There's the um, community like ninety seven or St. Mark's poetry mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in New York and poetry small, small world. Small press world, yeah. Um, and then there was a third one, commercial. commercial the commercial is in big publishers. I think of, I think of this. Um, uh, if they are indeed different worlds, that that may be one thing. They are certainly different publishing worlds. The 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 world and the expectation of university presses and the kinds of poetry that are published in university presses and the way they are distributed is one thing. The small presses are that are that are independent of university affiliation is something else entirely. And then, of course, the commercial presses, which where poetry is plays less and less and less of a role um, because they can no longer publish books that only sell a couple thousand copies. Um, the demands there are very different entirely. I had one trip back in the 90s when I was when I was pushing the first book that Hanging Loose published, where I went from here, uh, from our little community, which has, you know, which is an academic community, although has other manifestations, and I went to Pittsburgh, and I dealt with some people. I was doing a reading at Carnegie Mellon, talking to the people who were publishing at the University of Pittsburgh Press, and that was all kind of interesting and a little bit scary for me. Then I went to Brooklyn and hung out with these people uh, who do who, who do Hanging Loose Press, who they're just so totally filled with enthusiasm. Well, you, I believe, Bob Hershon, Robert Hershon, who is the uh, yeah. founder of Hanging, Hanging Loose, Loose Press, yeah. will be on the show in a couple okay. of weeks. Yeah, um, you know, you'll you'll see his incredible enthusiasm undiminished by the fact that he's seventy. Uh, and then I went and stayed with a guy who, at that time, was was my agent for selling things that might make a little more money, whose whole life revolved around Random House and and Harper Collins and Simon and Schuster, um, and it was like I was just overwhelmed with this enormous sums of money, none of which were coming my way, by the way, but that he was dealing with and the kinds of pressures that that was, and it was a very, it was so completely different. All of them, I think, had interesting parts, but I certainly knew where I was most comfortable. I was certainly most comfortable with the small press people filled with enthusiasm and dead broke. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you, is that, um, this is probably a a silly question, but take it where you will. Um, Is that personality and and sort of where you are, or does that have something to do with fidelity of the work or the kind of work you're doing, or how... um, I, the, the, your generous take on that, that you know, fidelity to the work and the certain aesthetic principles and things like that, that would be nice. But I really do think your first take might be the right one. I mean, I th- really do think some of these differences are probably personality, the way we're hardwired coming into this. We're going to go in certain directions. Um, you know, of course, there's been our own upbringings are going to play into that. And, you know, the fact that I, I am most comfortable with small presses that are doing wacky things and and, and are not commercially successful could indeed very well grow out of uh, my Mennonite upbringing. You know, where those people, none of those people ever had any money, and they all worked uh, with complete enthusiasm because they were doing it all for God. Um, and uh, so, you know, I mean, some of those relationships seem kind of clear to me. Don't get me wrong, though. I, you know, one of my books ends up selling fifty thousand copies. I'll, I'll take it. I'll You'll take be it. a rock star. I'll poet. take it in a dead minute. <laughs> 
nothing wrong with them. A little yep. cash in the bank. I don't want to be too pure. No. So let's talk a little bit about what's next. This this book, Guilty at the Rapture, includes work, some new work, and also work that you've been you know, over the past 20 years, yeah. this collection of stuff. Um, what are you working on now? Well, I have a whole new collection of poems built around different kinds of things, which are kind of interesting. I'm working on some very short poems coupled with prose things in the Japanese style of Haibun. That was a nice uh, sampling of that kind of thing in Gary Snyder's last book. Called, the book was called Danger on Peaks. Um, so I'm thinking about doing a chapbook of that, dedica- dedicating it to a, a, a nature writer friend of mine, Jerry Dennis, who lives up north in Traverse City. Um, you dedicate a lot of your work. I do, yes, yes. And I, I, I used to try to suppress that, and now it's like, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. Because, I mean, this is... Um, it's it's done out of a com- it's done in and out of a community of friends and family and uh, I know that and when I'm writing these things I know what is motivating that um, and at least I think I should mention that. Um, do you mention it for the friends and family and for yourself, or do you mention it for the readers, or what sort of I, I, audience do you, do you imagine if so? Certainly for the friends and family, um, mm-hmm. and certainly for myself. But but the simple fact that um, that other people realize this, even though they would never know the names of most of these people. Um, now, in this book, for instance, I have an imitation of a Tom Lynch poem, and I do say that. Uh, I have an imitation of a Canadian novelist, very well known in Canada, named Robert Croach, who's not very well known in the United States, but I feel like I have to mention his influence on that poem. Um, the rest of them, I mean, there's a poem mentioned, you know, dedicated to a, a, a kid named Nicholas Wallace who was in elementary school with my daughter, used to tease her about sharks. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I don't even know if Nick Wallace is ever going to read this poem, uh, let alone um, anyone else. But but uh, the fact that he's part of the poem and, and you know, his little his, his life in, in Ann Arbor um, is intersected with my life and the fact that my daughter was afraid to swim for a couple of years. Uh, because of those freshwater sharks that were going to get her um, after she saw Jaws, and uh, Jaws did it for all of us. <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. Um, and uh, so you know, I mean, that's all important to me, and, and I like the sense now. I'm now I am completely comfortable with the sense that uh, that, that I recognize where all of this comes from, and uh, you know, it's, it's if it doesn't interest you, it's easy to look overlook it, just not care. Um, a couple of the poems in there in this book I do are their poems that are in a, in a section called uh, Borrowed Lives, two longish poems in a section called Borrowed Lives, which are in the voice of my, my wife's late parents. That they, they just told me these stories that seemed too good to give up mm-hmm. and and so I would tell them in their voice. Um so that and that seemed to be recognized too. Plus I knew as as a friend of mine once said, you know a lot of dead people. And uh, you know, the yellow Jake thing is important. I mean, it's important to people. It's important to writers that uh, that, that the, the grief is one of the great the great motivators for for art. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, I, rec- I mean, I love those people who died. So it's important that I recognize them. Well, in this community, in your book, um, seems to me to be a really nice. Um, example of the community that is your life. Um, I think of, I mean, the show is called The Living Writer's Show, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. but I, as I, the more and more I talk to you and, and I'm familiar with your work, I, I'm struck by how this seems to be a literary life. And I don't mean that in some exalted ivory tower kind of way. Yeah. I mean, you've managed the Shaman Drum bookstore mm-hmm. and um, been a book buyer and mm-hmm. you've been an editor and you are a teacher yeah. and a writer yeah. in multiple genre and um this community of people, both writers and otherwise, is sort of informs a life that it, that 
lands on the page. Yeah, and it's it's. I mean, I feel very gifted to have had that life, and um, I didn't expect it when I when I when I got here. I came here. I don't have a glowing education. I have a haphazard education. Um, I was not part of the educational elite, but the town has been good to me, and the place has been good to me, and provided all these options, and I do have a literary life, and I'm kind of pleased by it. Great. Well, we're going to wrap it up. We've run out of Thanks, time, I, I hate to I hate to say. Um, but I want to say that you're reading tonight at the Shaman Drum Bookstore I at am, 7, 7 o'clock, o'clock. Yep. on State yep. Street. And you're also participating in a conference called Representing the Natural World, which is a tribute to John Knott, who's retiring from the English Department. And um, you'll be introducing Janice Ray. I will indeed. I look forward to it. And uh, you co-edited the book, um, The Huron River Voices from the Watershed with John Knott yep. back in 2000. And that conference uh, is Friday and Saturday. Friday and Saturday. Uh, and Friday one is, is in Angel Hall, on the third floor of Angel Hall. And folks can check the English Department at yeah. the University of Michigan yeah. website for yeah. details. So thank you so much, for, Keith, for joining me today. It's thank been you, really Ashley. great to have you. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us today. As ever, it's great to have you out there. Next week, Terry Blackhawk will be my guest. Please stay tuned. The Sports Report is next. And I'd like to thank, in addition to you and my guest, Keith Taylor, I'd like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing a good job, as usual. Stay tuned. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Ashley David, and The Sports Report is next. Conkle sending out the signals, setting up outside. The one-two pitch, fastball, swing, and a miss. He struck him out. Jim Brower with his 200th career strikeout to end the top of the second inning. And Brower is now just the eighth pitcher in Michigan Wolverines baseball history to strike out 200 batters in his career. Good afternoon, Ann Arbor, and welcome to the Daily Sports Report. I'm your host, Tony Bolton, joined in studio.